You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. It's pretty crazy because my guest is calling me from Australia, where it's 10 a.m., and in New Jersey, it's 8 p.m., so he's probably been up for a few hours, and I'll be going to bed in a few hours. Anyway, my guest is, uh, what can I say? He's such a talented guy. He was one of the founding members of NXS. He's got a great new album. I watched his two videos, which I'm a big video guy, and I'm glad that someone's making great videos. And he's an AM, which is a member of the Order of Australia. And my guest is Andrew Ferris. How you doing, Andrew? Hey, Steve. How are you? Too? How are you this evening? I should say. Isn't it weird? How? No, I got to ask you. You're you're over in Australia. I know you live on a, a farm. What is it like with coronavirus over there? Because in America, we're going crazy. What's it? How's it affecting you guys over there? Yeah, it's it's you know well, it's affected us, and we've had nowhere near the amount of uh, you know tragic sort of deaths and you know uh, cases. But then our population is not as great in Australia. But we've still all been in lockdown, and it, the, the government's beginning to ease restrictions a little bit for people. But it's, yeah, it's been a crazy time. I don't know what else to say. I mean, I, you know, it's affected everybody in the world. You know, so it's a crazy time. How does how does it affect your your creativity personally? Well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I guess uh, you know, I I'm fortunate, very fortunate in a sense, to live in a remote farm area. You know. And I have a recording studio here and stuff, and uh, but it's a working farm. It's it's kind of uh, also a working studio, and so I'm really fortunate to be able to to do to not only do my music work, but also to to continue with the agriculture work I do on my farm. And that's a balance in my life. You know, I I worked in in so many different countries and lived in other countries besides Australia, worked in, a, I think I worked in 52 countries oh, within excess in the, in the end. We toured relentlessly for years. And, uh, you know, but I gotta say that I, I'm really glad I live in a remote area after all this crazy virus stuff. I mean, uh, you know, I feel really fortunate and it's not why I chose to live the way I live here. Well, I didn't, I didn't, think that that would ever happen to us all you know now now how did you get into the agricultural part i mean you know you're a musician you're a great musician right. you're, you're an amazing songwriter but people don't think hey you know the andrew from nxs he's a he's works he has a working farm how did that happen because that fascinates me yeah that's right well most you know it just seems to me you know and it was, well first of all it was something that especially from years of touring and traveling, living out of a suitcase in hotels and whatever, you know, I was just glad, like most people, to get home and have some stability and, you know, normal time with friends and family or whatever. But more than that, I began to realize the more I traveled and worked, uh, you know, overseas and, you know, traveled around so much that, some things are consistent. Doesn't matter how much technology changes in the world, you know, there'll, there'll always be some new device or new way to do something technologically. But we've always got to have food. We've got to have good food, and that's just a, a basic thing. You know, you can't eat a smartphone, right? Right. <laughs> you know, right. Uh, it doesn't matter how many gadgets and clever things they stick in it. Um, it doesn't matter. You know, and so that's something that hit home to me the more I traveled and I thought about it, you know, at the end, you know, in, in, 
One thing's for certain, in two or three, five hundred years' time, people will still be eating food, you know? Now, how does one become, learn how to be a farmer? I mean, you know, a musician, you can sit down and you can play the musician and you can take lessons, but to become a farmer, I mean, what goes into it? I mean, were you prepared for it? Is it a lot more work than you thought? Well, yeah, I initially I bought a small dairy farm uh, that, you know, from, from an older couple that had retired and I didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest. Um, I just started rebuilding things and, 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 you know, once you get out in nature and you start observing and you're watching you and you learn and if you enjoy it, then you begin to understand the way things work, you know, same with machinery too. If you're careful and you, you know, and you, you ask people's opinions, uh, and you know, if people are good people, they'll they'll, they'll help you. You know, locally, that they'll they'll say, "Why don't you try doing this?" or "Don't do that," or whatever. And and so you know, it's, a lot of it's common sense as you go along. And and one of the things that you know that we get a bit out, out of touch with if you're in big cities or or even the suburbs sometimes is just the power of nature. You know, like we we've just come out of the three year, the most serious drought. Uh, in living memory of anyone around here, and there's no one old enough anymore to remember something so serious. We came out of that and went to some horrific bushfires, you know, that destroyed homes and people died, and it was really tragic. And, uh, we, you know, that was out of the drought, and now we're in this pandemic thing, you know. Um, so, but all of it's the power of nature, right? You know, whether, whether it's the virus or whether it's, the, you know, the weather or... Whatever you want to call it, it's it's gonna it's bigger than you think, you know. It, and that's part of the reason I again I'm, that I enjoy it because I I like I like being able to to know where, where you know where I am, uh, you know who my neighbours are, who's coming down the drive to talk to me, you know, or, or whatever, and, and it's just the way I like to live. You know? Now in January you were named an AM. A member of the uh, yeah. Order of Australia. What? Tell my listeners what exactly is that? And I looked it up. That's like a really, really high honor. Yeah, it's pretty full on. I mean, the next, the next highest honor is military grade, and you know, I, I certainly don't feel like I'm in that league at all. Uh, the people who put themselves in harm's way for our countries, you know, that's a whole other deal. Um, but, but you know, still, yeah, it was. A, it's a big thing, and. Yeah, I was kind of surprised, to be honest. I was a little overwhelmed. I mean, I, you know, I wish my parents were still alive to be able to see me get something like that. I couldn't believe it, you know. Um, but my my family and my friends and mates or whatever, they all, they thought it was good. And But I, I knew something uh, in order to, to be eligible and, you know, to, to for, for the government to want to give you something like that. You need to be, to, to be doing some sort of community work for people or, you know, doing the greater good. It's not about you, it's about everybody, it's about other people, you know. And and I worked for the university for a while in Canberra. Uh, they offered me a fellowship, gave me a fancy title in an office, which I never dreamed I'd have, and they, they put my name on the door, and I worked out of there with young people for a long time. And then I, you know, after that I began to realize I, I want to make music again, I want to make my own music, and that's how I ended up in a full circle again you know, doing my own music, but I, I've also been doing, you know, shows like benefit shows. They had a big benefit show here for the for the drought relief, and I was a part of that. And I think all those things were kind of, I didn't realize they were adding up to someone somewhere that, that, 
they would give me an award like that. You know, I don't know. You know, to be honest, Steve, I was amazed they gave it to me at all. You know? <laughs> yeah. no, I'm I, like, what's this? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's like, wow. Because it's funny because when you look, when I look you up, it says AM next to your name. And I'm like, what's AM? So I had to go look for it. Yeah, and I go, right. oh, yeah. AM's pretty damn big. I'm like, Jesus, that's almost yeah, well, like royalty. I get up early in the morning. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you said you went full circle to to, uh, to write your own music. Um, tell me about the album. It's it's sort of got a country sound to it. I've heard the two songs, the two videos. How do you embark on writing an album when people do know you because you're such a prolific songwriter with In Excess? How do you, as an artist, sit there and say, you know, I love when I wrote for In Excess, but I don't want it to sound like In Excess because that's an earlier part of my life. Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, exactly. Uh, you know, that, that's, the, that's the question. And I, I struggled with that idea myself. I think that's why I never start, embarked on a solo career or started my own music career a little earlier because of that exact question. I, you know, so many people, you know, we, I mean, we had this massive international career and I think we sold over 50 million records or some crazy number of records and, and, you know, we, we had a big ride. You know, we had a big, big a career as a band. And I don't have any regrets. I love those guys. Um, I miss them. But I think, uh, for me, and I tried to think, where does Andrew Farris fit into this landscape, soundscape landscape? The more I looked at it, I thought, you know, what I don't want to do is, is, is kind of, you know, affect the legacy that, in excess creative, you know, because we, we, we have a big fan base. A lot of people seem to like the band, like what we did. And I respect that. You know, I, that's not a little thing. That's a big thing. So for me, when I thought about me, I started off doing what I naturally do, which is write songs. I'm a songwriter. I've always done that's what I do. And I, I'm a bit of a tinkerer. I like engineering, you know. And I don't just mean sound engineering. I mean, I actually like... <laughs> A little crazy like that, a little eccentric. I like to know how bridges are built. Okay. Uh, I like to know how a tractor works, you know what I mean? You know, I, I'm, I'm that kind of person. I think like that, you know. And that's part of the reason that I, I enjoyed and still do writing music is because I like the construction of it. You know, it's not, it's not just playing the music. It's actually construction. That part of it I find really interesting uh, and always have. Uh, but... Where my journey really started, I started off writing songs both here in, in Australia, but with you know with other uh, songwriters and by myself, which I've always done. But also, I then went to uh, over to the U.S. My wife's uh, originally from Ohio, from the states, so we go visit family and, and friends we have over there anyway. Um, but where they, uh, where her family are, where they are, is Dayton in Ohio. And so Nashville wasn't that far, like five-hour drive or something. It's really nothing for us out here in Australia. So, you know, my wife Marley and I started to drive to Nashville. And I started riding with folks there, you know. I had a really good time. And I, it's a good city. It's an interesting city. And it's fun, you know. I like the live music scene there. And so I started sort of working with people out of there. And, and at first I thought, you know, what am I trying to do, you know? I guess I'm in that sense. I'm not a pure country artist, but I'm, I enjoy. It. I've always liked country music. I, I like the genre. I like the attitude of it, and uh, and I'm a I'm a country boy. I live in the country. You know what I mean? I don't live in a big city. I live in the country, and and so I started thinking about it more. And 
as time went along, I also liked riding horses. And uh, we went, my wife and my Molly and I went down to the, to the Mexican border in Arizona, uh, right in the corner of, of Arizona uh, and New Mexico, uh, near a little town called Portal. And uh, right down, you know, with Mexico, literally just over the, the Chiricahua Mountains there. And I started horse riding around there with a couple. The four of us started riding around. And I got an education on, you know, the early years, the cowboy years. Uh, and I'm talking about the Old West. And I started riding around, visiting your national monument areas. And, uh, you know, I began to, a light went on in my mind. I thought, you know, it's kind of strange. Like, I understand that the world changes and everything. And, you know, there's always been fads and fashions and always will be. You know, wherever it's hip now in 20, 30 years, it's not going to be. It's going to be something else going on. You know, that's the way of the world, you know. But when I started riding around with my wife and just having fun and getting an education from, from an old wrangler, he passed away. His name was Craig Lawson. You know, it's kind of like Jack Palance. You know, right. city <laughs> slickers, you know. <laughs> you know, just one thing, that kind of thing, you know. But, um, and he was a cool guy, and his wife, and I, you know, but he so sadly passed away. Now, Dad, he was buried by uh, some of your uh, Marines, I think. He was in, that guy was in high high regard by a lot of people, because they used to, uh, some of the uh, Army veterans and that would go out where, where we rode around, and, and Craig would take him out, and it was some sort of, uh, you know, post, uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, you know, um, stress syndrome relief, you know, by, by doing what we were doing, you know, riding around and, well, anyway, so I began to get an education, all this is in this, like, tombstone area down that bottom part of, uh, of uh, Arizona, and I began to think more and more about the era, you know, and we were in a very remote area, and, and I live in a remote area now, and, I, and we had bush rangers here in Australia, you know, outlaws and crazy guys that ran around, you know, you know, getting up to no good with firearms and horses or whatever. And I started thinking, and when I went back to Nashville, I began to realize that, you know, as much as it's country music, it's also kind of pop music, the modern. It's, and, I, and I related to that because I thought of my own experience with my funk and rock and pop and stuff that I've done over the years and, you know, being on international music charts. And I started thinking about it more. And someone said to me, well, hey, man, we're here writing. What do you want to write about? And I said, you know what, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I really want to write about the stuff that I normally, you know, people want to write about in Nashville. I want to write about the Old West. I want to write about the sort of people that were riding around out there 100 years ago. What was their life like? What, how did they eat? How did they, what, were they drinking? Where did they live? How did they sleep? You know, what was going on? You know, and because if you stop and think about it for a minute, that is what influenced early country music. It's folk music and all those classical instruments, you know, that they, it went from being a violin to a fiddle and then you had mandolins that, you know, all the background of those early country music instruments all came from folk music and from 100, you know, 50 years ago. And so I thought, well, I guess that's how those, those same things would have affected the early country people, you know, artists, you know, such as your Hank Williams's and, and uh, Johnny Cash's and Roy Rogers and Willie Nelson, they all said they want to be cowboys. They didn't say they wanted to be truckers, you know what I mean? Right. You know, um, <laughs> right? You know, and, and then I thought to myself, so that's where the really 
the fusion of it all was not just music with blues and country and, and folk and, you know, and, and rootsy kind of stuff. It was also a clash of cultures. You know, you had, you had the clash of, of uh, uh, you know, the old West. You had Mexican people fighting with the U.S. cavalry. You had U.S. cavalry fighting with the, the indigenous people and, the, you know, the Native Americans. Uh, you know, the Apache Indians in the case of the area that I was riding around in. And, you know, all this was going on. And I thought, why doesn't anyone write about this stuff? You know, like, <laughs> you know, it's incredible. Um, you know, and it's living, it's living history. It's like what actually happened. It's not bullshit. That's what went down, you know. Um, and yeah, so I started saying to people, and I think they looked at me like I, I was loopy or something. I probably am loopy anyway, but they said, you know, what, what, you want to write about that? And I said, yeah, that's what I want to write about, you know, is, is that era. And, and I started looking into the clothing of it, and, and Marley and I started researching what people used to wear, you know. Uh, and why they wore what they wore. Um, the reasons they wore a lot of the clothes they wore wasn't just for fashion. Yeah, sure, it was partly fashion. Most of it was for practical reasons. You know, like a duster, a big coat that they wore was because they lived out in, they lived out in the open. They often, you know, they didn't have cars. And, you know, even before the railroad, they, they had to ride a horse to get anywhere or be on a horse in a car. You know, so you'd need a, some sort of coat to keep the weather off you. And that's why the coats look like they look. And a lot of it was, was born from the military too, from cavalry. They, the reason they wore long leather boots on the outside of, the, of their pants wasn't because it looked cool or whatever, it was because they didn't want the inside of, the, of their calf, of their leg, to get chafed on the leather from riding a horse. Like all that stuff began to occur to me that that, you know, it, it put a different perspective in my mind. It's not Hollywood. It's not a fantasy. Like, it's all real, <laughs> you know. Um, and, that, and that's where I guess I, I started my journey. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go down this road, and I, I don't care if everyone thinks I'm crazy, um, but I like this, you know. Now, so that, that's, that's how it started. Now, is it is it hard when you start an album, a solo album, because, as we'd say, you know, in Excess was a different kind of music, and you had albums that had so many hits. Do you think about that when you're writing a new album, or do you go, screw it, I'm doing this album for me, because I fell in love with this culture, and I want to follow that? Yeah, exactly, that's right, you know, that's exactly right. I just felt, I, you know, I actually had a, you know, a, a very kind of moving, I don't know how to explain this, these sort of conversations never translate very well, but I'm going to do my best to try you know, I was, I was camping out, or we were, Marley and I were camping, why I say camping, we were in an old stone house at the base of the Chiricahua Mountains, and the wind was howling through the mountains, it was very windy, it was cold. And I, I kind of heard this melody in my head, like an old sad kind of melody from it, and it kind of spooked me, it was, I don't know, it was a little weird. And I, then it, but it wasn't like a happy pop, melody or anything like you know it wasn't about that i just i was very moved emotionally by that area i get the feeling that a lot of people went through a lot of hardship in that area uh you know and, and people lived and died for the things they believed in you know in those areas and and, and there was trouble and but beyond all that it's beautiful it's like geographically it's beautiful it's, 
you know. And, and, and same with areas, out, out remote areas in Australia, it's the same thing. And, you know, th- that's right. You know, I said to myself, uh, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to follow this path. Something's telling me, my instinct's telling me I should do this. And I guess to be honest with you as well, it's easier for me to become that person than to try and relive the years I was within excess because that's not what I'm doing now. That's not who I am. I'm doing something else. And so I, I, I really am proud of my, my years I spent with those guys. Uh, I really, I don't regret anything. We did some amazing stuff together, but it's not what I'm doing now. Yeah. Now, how has your writing style changed? I know with In Excess, what was your writing style with In Excess? Was it you with Michael a lot? How was that? And then how is it when you do it by yourself now? Do you still keep the same process or do you do something completely different? Yeah, I, I do do things, you know, very differently. Well, first of all, Mark and I worked in a certain pattern together. I wouldn't say it's exactly a formula. It was more practical where Michael uh, never really played a musical instrument. His musical instrument was his voice, and what a voice. I mean, wow. Yeah. You know? um, but he, he didn't play instruments, and he was never trained musically. So he had no real you know, mathematical idea of music, you know, theory, you know, and so, and, but I did, I, you know, I was taught piano in the old fashioned sort of theoretical, you know, theory sense and scales and all that. And I taught myself to play guitar, but I, I still understood music. So I knew, or I ha- always have known musically what I'm kind of doing <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> but, um, you know, but uh, I think it was more with Michael and I that that was the thing that really worked for the two of us is we were very different people. You know, he he thought really differently to me and I thought differently to him. And we knew that that was that combination that, that made our writing really interesting, I think, is that, that we didn't write songs that sounded like many other people and our, our songs have been covered by some amazing artists over the years. You know, uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Matchbox 20, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, I mean, a huge list of people. Joe Cocker, Tom Jones, uh, Natalie Ann Brugler, I mean, there's a big list of people. Bonnie Raitt, you know, and and it's because I think they heard, some, they heard something in our songs that isn't typical, the way we wrote together. And, and, and so when I go to write by myself now, you know, to answer your question in that way, I, I, I don't try to replicate that concept but what I do is I remember the things that you know in my old older times when I was writing I remember the things that were outside the square outside the box that were a little unusual radical you know for example instead of putting neat little sections of four eight sixteen bars into something throw an odd five bar section in or um you know make sure uh, the other thing I was I'm always been incredibly careful with is tempos. Tempos are very important uh, in music, you know, and it's something I'm very, very particular about uh, if I'm working up a music, and I still do that. That's something I'm very fussy about. And the same with, you know, uh, now, because I'm singing the songs that I'm writing and not Michael, uh, you know, he and I have different vocal ranges. That's why I would never compete with him vocally because I couldn't get up high like he does and I'm more comfortable singing down low. So a lot of the songs that we 
that we wrote together, you know, were really to suit the way his vocal style was, you know? Whereas when I'm writing now, I'm writing to suit my own voice and thinking about, you know, how do I want to do this so that I, I don't sound like shit. Right. <laughs> you know, now, I sound as good as I can. Now, when you when you decided to sing, once again, because you said when you wrote the parts for Michael, because you're right, Michael did have such a great voice. Is it intimidating when you sit there and go, okay, I got to sing these? I mean, how does a person who hasn't been a lead singer of a band, now it's you, you're singing, you're everything. Yeah. How do you how do you adapt to that? What what did you do to get yourself psyched up or or did you I mean when did you know you could have a voice when you could actually sing? Uh, well actually I, I still don't know that I'm a very good singer. <laughs> I know I'm a good songwriter but I, I still don't know, you know, but I have a sense of humor about myself and but I think I'm in good company. I think John Lennon always said he hated his voice, so I kind of understand that. Um, I, I think it's more that I feel now that as a singer, you know, I didn't have really have any confidence, and so I, I thought I really couldn't sing or I wasn't a very good singer. And when I started actually songwriting with, with some other uh, songwriters, especially in Nashville, I was working with a couple of guys... Uh, couple of great writers there, James Dean Hicks and um, Buck Johnson. Buck uh, sings, by the way, with Aerosmith and plays keyboards with him. Okay. And, um, you know, he's an awesome singer. And I was in the room writing with those two guys and we, we've written a lot together. And Buck and James turned around to me and said, why don't you sing a song? And I kind of was a weird moment. I'm like, well, because you're an incredible singer. <laughs> you know? Like, why would you want me to sing it, you know? And they're like, because I think, you know, it would suit your voice. And it surprised me. So they kind of, I guess, you know, babysat me through that and got me to be comfortable with my own voice. And it's not about ego, but that confidence thing was really important for me. To have really good singers encourage me to sing was psychologically a really big moment for me. You know, I, it was like I didn't instantly think I was a great singer. It's like... I'm still learning all the time. It's something I should have done a lot more of when I was younger. But, you know, it was, when you get in a band and you've been in a band for a long time, I don't care what anyone says, the reason the bands work is because you, you, you're all parts of a, a machine, like a cog in a wheel, you know, in a wheel, you know. And if you get too far out of your, your box that you're supposed to be in, weird things happen in the band, you know. Um, and that's how bands work, you know. And, and so for me, I've had to re, kind of just, you know, no regrets, but I look at things differently now than I used to. That's all, you know. Now, well, you, you have two singles out uh, right now. We'll leave the videos up. And, right. and right. Had, okay, what was the difference of, you? did you pick these two singles and then when you were in excess, did the record companies pick the singles? Or how does that, how does that work? Well, fortunately for me, uh, yeah, you know, over the years, in the old days, record companies, management, you know, producers, you know, would often, you know, choose certain songs they thought would make good singles. But fortunately for me, they were songs I'd written. Right. You know? So I'm like, well, I don't care, pick anyone, go for it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I wrote the song, if you like it, put it out. You know, it was just that simple. I, I wasn't hung up about it, you know. Whereas now... I'm a little different where I, I'm thinking because I now have a, an Andrew Farris solo career and I'm thinking about 
other things like where do I want to position myself? Why do I want this song out there? And what am I trying to say to people? Or what am I trying to project to people, you know? And so I'm thinking about it for different reasons than I would have in the past. But I'm still proud of the fact that I'm still writing or co-writing all the songs that I'm releasing, you know? I mean, I, I might record a couple of covers as I go along of other artists that I've always loved, but I'm still writing and it's something I'm proud of. I like my, I like my songs and I, I don't know if they're the best songs ever, but I like my songs and other people seem to like them, you know? So, uh, you know, I, I'm feeling good about that. And, but I like, yeah, I've released two singles so far. It's Come Midnight and Good Mama Bad. And it, uh, we like, well, as I call it, we've got a cowboy theme running in, in these videos. And I'm glad you like the videos because I put a lot of effort along with, with Marley, my wife, and uh, into these uh, videos. And um, we've shot more of them too, by the way. And um, because of this pandemic thing, I stopped releasing product for a while because I didn't know whether, you know, the world was ending or some weird ship was going on out there, you know. And I just wanted to wait and see a little bit what was going to unfold and now I can see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel for everybody I hope that we'll return to something a little bit more normal uh, before it all started and you know I'm feeling more, a little bit better and a little bit more at ease about the idea of releasing some more material I got some more songs got some more ideas uh, for videos and I'm excited about it and you know if I can afford to keep doing it and people get into it and buy it I'll keep doing it now the, vi the videos um, as you know I'm 56. I'm, I'm, a, I'm. I grew up, you know, with the generation of MTV, and in excess, right. and in excess. I mean, you know, MTV did a lot because you guys had cool videos. You were a good-looking hit band. Is that why you created these good videos? Because you see a lot of videos these days, and they're crap. Yours are actually. For, is it looks like, like what a video to me. I mean, I'm, I'm an older guy, but a video to me should look like. Was that why the video was important? Because they. They helped out in excess, or why did you? Pick yeah, no, I, look, I, no, that's it. well. First of all, thank you for the for the for the, for the um, you know accolades and for, for the acknowledgement of that. I really appreciate it. Um, I was going to say that uh, the videos, yeah, they're always very very important to an excess, and you know, Michael and, and all of us guys, uh, you know, in the band, uh, always took it, you know, as part of our art, you know, part of our group and the image and the artwork, and, uh, you know, everything we were doing, you know, the videos were a big part of what we were doing because we liked the visual aspect of it. And also, given the tyranny of distance between Australia and the United States, or Australia, actually, for that matter, and the rest of the, rest of the world, Europe's even further away. But during those years, you know, because of the tyranny of distance, the videos were really important for us. You know, it wasn't like, because I know what it's like. I lived in England for nearly five years, uh, you know, in, in, during in excessive career, and I, I worked in the U.S. for a long time uh, as well, you know, touring there and recording and whatever. But I know what it's like to travel from, say, you know, New York to London. It's not really that far, you know. Um, it's not that far, really, from, from New York to L.A., but it is far to go from Sydney to, to New York. And it's really far to go from Sydney to London. You know, that's the difference. And so when we were making these videos, we knew at the time, if we put a lot of effort and time and money into these things, down the track it might pay off for us, you know. Um, eventually we actually made a film, a uh, 35mm, you know, professional film, shot by a filmmaker, big surprise. 
at Wembley Stadium in uh, 13th of July, 1991. And I think one of the ironies of that is you know, even when I lived in England, I used to go see other bands, the biggest bands and acts in the world at that time, playing uh, at Wembley Stadium. Right? It could have been the Rolling Stones or, you know, um, whoever it was, um, Tina Turner, uh, Michael Jackson. And I, I used to go along for professional reasons, too. I wanted to see, you know, how, how they conducted themselves live, what their light shows were like, their production, how it sounded, you know? So if In Excess went out and we went out on tour that I'd know what other bands looked like and sounded like and what they were doing. That was part of what I was doing back then. Um, but the point is with the videos, yeah, the videos were a serious deal. And, and I've continued to try and do that. You know, I've got some people around me who, who <laughs> they get worried. They're like, hey, man, you know, do you really want to spend that much money on a video? I'm going, damn right I do. You know, um, you know? and then they think I'm nuts. You know, I'm like, but I'm like, no, because down the track, just like you and I are having this conversation, you know, Andrew Farris and Steve Cooper were having this talk, right? Well, I don't know, in 10, 20 years, so I'm like, who is this Andrew Farris dude? And they put the video on, they go, that's pretty cool, you know, because you, you took the time and effort to do it properly, you know? Well, now, now, how has the video process changed? Because I'm sure, as you said, in excess where, you know, probably high budgets. I know some were so, shot in different places. These are, you're making them now. How how has the actual production of a video changed or hasn't it? Well, you know, there's like one of the massive differences is, you know, for example, when we shot the film at Wembley Stadium that we made, uh, you know, we, we to get up high to take, you know, shots of the band, we had to get a West Cam, like a chopper, you know, helicopter with a 35mm camera on a stand, you know, so that the cameraman could film it. Well, now you just send up a drone. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's those kind of things that are really different, and computer technology is completely different. Like, you can do stuff now on a computer that you just couldn't have done back when we were shooting videos. Like in the old days, it was either film. I remember once uh, Mick Jagger called Michael when we shot a video called What You Need. And he was like, how the fuck did you make that video? You know? <laughs> he, did, he had no idea of the technology that we used. And Mark was kind of laughing. And he said, do you really want to know? He said, yeah, damn right, I don't want to know. And he said, oh, well, okay, you're not going to believe this. We just had a 16mm bollocks film camera running the whole time. And then we got a motor drive camera. And then so we would, you know, we would lip sync or mime to the video. And then each of the negative, uh, you know, negatives from the, from the uh, still camera were hand-colored and then sequenced and played back in, in, in real time. And it, the whole video, that part of it, was was developed by like a drugstore down the road for like 200 bucks, you know. And he was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, no, that, I said, well, that's, what we, that's how we did it. You know, it was, a lot of how you make great visual or video or even film, a lot of it is the idea. The actual machinations of doing things don't always have to be expensive. It's, it's, how, it's how, how much you got your shit together in the first place of what you want to do. If you know what you want to do, the practical aspect of what you want to do is often not as hard as you think it is, or even is, doesn't even have to be as expensive, just as long as you know what it is you're trying to do, 
Yeah. Now, now, when you were in in excess, what was your what was your favorite video to shoot to be in? What was your favorite video? Yeah, I, I've got a couple of them. I mean, I think. I, I really liked uh, some of our early videos, uh, Don't Change, uh, you know, which one I really liked. And it's such a, a banned video, you know, in every every pub in Australia and, every, and a lot of so many bars in the US and Canada and all around the world, people would cover that song, you know. Um, and because it looks like a, just a band, you know. Uh, and then there was more wacky kind of out there videos as well, like original film. We shot that in Tokyo with a Japanese biker gang. You know, that was pretty weird. Uh, and then, you know, we shot another video uh, in, while we were there in Tokyo. This would be about 1983 for a song we had called I Send a Message. And the head monk of the famous uh, beautiful old wooden temple in Tokyo, you know, where Hirohito and, uh, you know, the, the really a very serious cultural icon this big huge well somehow they let us in there to shoot a video we're young australian guys in our early 20s you know and we're in this beautiful old uh, buddhist temple and uh, the, the the head monk you know he, he's bald and he, he's got uh, the flowing robes you know the purple and yellow and buddhist gear on with the thongs or whatever uh, not thongs sorry flip-flops whatever it is <laughs> you guys call them and uh, and um and he anyway he's uh you know, Michael and I saw him, and we, we said to him, "Excuse me, sir. Uh, we are so grateful that you let us in here after 800 years. You know, uh, we're the only gaijin you've ever let in here to shoot videos. Um, why us? You know, after 800 years of separation. You know, and he, and he goes, I like to play the trumpet?' And he picks up this trumpet and goes, da -da 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 -da. I'm going, you've got to be kidding me.' You know, what I mean, like." How Buddhist is that? You know, like, there is no reason at all. It's like Spot Trumpet. You know, like, it's bizarre. Like, in other words, we're musicians, so he relates to us. Now, now how, um, did, how did you hook up with a, 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 a... Were they real bikers? Yeah, well, yeah, they were, except the difference between, say, you know, an Aussie or, uh, you know, American bikey gang is they had plastic guns. You know? <laughs> Seriously, you know. Uh, but they, they, you know, I wouldn't like to mess around with those dudes. They kind of look rough to me. Um, and, yeah, but, you know, look, and that was just, that was the early years. Later on, we, you know, the videos we shot for, uh, I think it was Devil Inside and uh, uh, New Sensation, uh, Guns in the Sky, uh, Never Tear Us Apart. Those videos, uh, the last three I just said, were shot in communist Czechoslovakia. Uh, we went over there and we, you know, we, we, uh, went to shoot video there and um uh boy oh boy boy that was an interesting experience um uh beautiful place a bohemian uh you know prague the city incredible uh and then you can see this sort of sad reflection when we got there of what the communists built you know with all gray concrete and then you've got this unbelievable city which in my mind is all equals if not more beautiful than paris um you know, with these old bohemian, you know, buildings everywhere, the old Prague. And, well, anyway, we're there shooting videos, and it's communist, you know? And um, there was two guys with pork-pie hats on, you know, fedoras and trench coats pretending to read newspapers on the other side of the old bridge where we were shooting video. And uh, the video uh, producer 
Scottish guy called Ian, Ian Brown. He walks over the bridge, he goes, you don't need to stand there pretending that, uh, that uh, you know, we're, that, uh, you, that we don't know what we're doing. You're watching what, we, what we're doing, are you? You know, and, um, <laughs> and they look real uncomfortable. And he says, why don't you come over on the other side where we're shooting a video and, and have some storage matter or something, you know. So um, they did. And they came over and they sat with us and we went, they went everywhere with us after that. Everywhere we went, we had these sort of, I don't know what they were, I guess, KGB or something wandering around with us everywhere. So a lot of it to me is not just about the videos. It's about the weird, funky experiences that happen while you're shooting them. You know, it's, that's the thing that I used to really enjoy was the cultural immersion of it all. It was really cool. You know, like you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this. You know, like this is just incredible. You know, um, it's not just about the video or the, you know, whatever. It's about... You know, and the people you were with, you know, uh, you know, it was incredible, amazing. Now, now you traveled the world with the next national. You guys were huge. Could you enjoy cities when you visited, or was it get up, do press, do a sound check, go to the hotel because you guys would get swamped? I mean, what is that like when you fly into a beautiful city or you see a beautiful city and go, man, I really want to check this out, but you can't? Well, I guess it's, you know, it's like going to a titty bar, you know. But yeah, you know. Uh, but yeah, I know what you mean. Um, you, you can look at it, but you can't enjoy it because you're busy. You know. Um, but the, the the point is, is that what I'm trying to say, you know, seriously, is that yeah, you know, you you, you miss out on a lot of things. But I, I think it's not so much the, the the that side of it to me that I think a lot of people don't fully understand is that when a lot of these big touring acts or artists come into your town to play, you know what. What the part of it is that, that is difficult for people is that, you know, you don't have your family there with you. You don't have your, your friends to share it with you. you. You're not like, you know, you can try to carry them around with you, but that's, it's not going to be something you can do for 12 months or 14 months, you know. You, and so I think that part of it is difficult, you know. That it's, it's on par in that sense with, <laughs> the same sort of sacrifice that people in corporate situations or even the military, I guess, have to make to be away from family and friends to do what they do, you know? Now, you said, you know, with the, with your solo album and the songs, you immersed yourself in that culture and you, you learned it and you and your wife right. did research. Now, because NXS had so much different kinds of music, what did you listen to as a kid and what influenced you to follow the path in your writing? Right. Well, see, you know, when my brothers and I, because my brothers were also obviously in excess, it was my brother Tim, and obviously my name's Andrew, and then my younger brother John. And when we were kids, we grew up in Perth, in Western Australia. Now, if you look at Perth on Google Maps or whatever, Perth in Western Australia is the most isolated city geographically in the world. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah. Most people don't. And uh, to the... Uh, West of Perth, you just have the Indian Ocean till you come to a different continent. And to the west, uh, sorry, to the east of Perth, you've got like uh, two and a half thousand miles or something to get to Adelaide, the next city. If you go north, you've got like, uh, you know, 3,000 miles to get to Darwin. And if you go south, you get to Antarctica, you know, where the, where the penguins are. Right. Um, 
and it's pretty isolated. And when we were little kids growing up there in the 60s, uh, radio, you know, there was nothing really that sophisticated about it. And they didn't, you do, you, we didn't have formats, really. You might have a classical station, a government-run station. You might have had two or three AM stations. But even the AM stations would all play whatever they felt like playing. So they might have a country song, they might, they, they might play North to Alaska, or uh, Ring of Fire, you know, something by Johnny Cash, and then they'd play a Beatles song. And then, or then, then they'd play, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a movie theme, you know. And then they'd play a pop song, like a, maybe it was a, you know, whatever it was, you know, Credence, maybe they'd put a Credence rock song on or something, or even later on, The Stones, whatever. But, but all of that stuff, they had on the one radio station. So when we were kids, I always thought, you know, naively, because I didn't realize that that's what the rest of the world did. So, you know, like in the US, you've got, what, 50 different separate, you know, formats, don't you, on radio or something? Oh, yeah. How many? How many you got there? So you know? many. <laughs> right, right. You know, and what I'm saying is, is that when we were kids, we didn't know that there was such a thing as that. And that was one of the reasons when I started writing music, I, I didn't, I wasn't really hung up or, or didn't think it was that important that I wrote only this kind of music or only that kind of music. To me, when I, I, and I still think like that, when I write music, I'll draw influences from every kind of music. You know, it doesn't bother me, it's all music. You know, and there's no rule book. Let's see, page number 85 says, I can't accommodate a little bit of uh, heavy metal or country music into this thing. There is no page 85 that says that. You know, you can do whatever you want to do, you know. Um, or you can put EDM in with classical music. You can put jazz in with funk. You can put, you know, funk in with, you know, EDM. I said, whatever, whatever it is you want to do, you know. Um, and... So that's kind of what I'm saying is that, that that's how I thought of it when I, and I still do when I write. Um, you know, I think to myself, just think, think big, think broadly. Don't don't narrow your vision to what you think you can write or not write. You know? Now, now, what was your your personal favorite in excess song that you wrote? Well, well, I guess that's the tricky one because we we made what. Uh, 11 or 12 studio albums. Sorry, I should know that answer. Um, but each one of those albums had at least 10 songs. That's a lot of songs. Um, plus we had, you know, one-off singles and whatever else we all did. Um, I don't know. I, I suppose there's certain songs that I, I, you know, I really like. Like, I guess, Mystify, Never Tear Us Apart, you know, um, I think Need You Tonight, uh, probably what you need. Uh, original sin. I guess don't change. I got a few of them. I can't help it. You know, I, I, I like the excess songs. I think they're good. They're, and what amazes me is they're still played on the radio all around the world. You know, um, it's incredible. Uh, I would never have dreamed that that was even possible when we were kids. I would have thought you, you, that was crazy to think about that. Now, now, do you remember the first time you ever heard in an excess song on the radio? Yeah, it would have been, well, that would have been around about 1979, I think, around about that year. Um, yeah, we had a we had a couple of singles out which were really weird um, songs, and but they got onto the radio. But it's a strange feeling. I, I think 
I don't know who said it. I'm trying to remember now who said it. it was someone famous, but they said the problem with with recordings that, that get released to the public is that when you walk on stage and, you, and you're playing a song in real time, and I'm not talking about computers and sequences and you know backing tracks and all that stuff. I'm talking about live music, like everyone's playing live in the band or the musicians are all playing live and singing live, you know. It never sounds exactly the same. If you recorded 300 performances by an artist and you recorded all 300 performances, it would never sound exactly the same if you're all playing live. But when you make a recording, even when you're extremely happy with it, every time it's played to everybody, it's exactly the same. Right. You see what I mean? And it's kind of weird. It's like, well, hang on a minute. Like, you know, that was one performance you know, of that song. You know, and I think that's one of the things over the years that, that I find a bit bizarre, you know, is that now I can't help it. Now, I, every time I listen to, you know, whether it's an NXS song or any, any artist's song that I like, or even if I don't like it, and I hear it on the radio, I, I can't help it. And I'm sure other people will relate to what I'm about to say. Is like I deconstruct it in my head as I'm listening to it. You know, like I work out how it was written. I think about how it was recorded. I, I listen if the tuning's right. I listen if, it, if it's been, everything's been auto-tuned by Pro Tools or whatever it is. You know, I'm listening the whole time to that. You know, I'm listening to the tempo. I'm listening to the, the lyric. I'm listening to it. You know, I'm, I'm deconstructing the thing in my head. And, and I've had to relearn how to just enjoy music without doing that. You know, right. To just listen to it as a song <laughs> or recording and go, yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, they're not deconstructed in my head as I'm listening to it. You know. Yeah, that, um, probably, that probably comes from your songwriting in you. And then now you were named, I believe, with the Australia Songwriting Hall of Fame? Yeah, that's right. Now, what? how big of an honor is that to you? Because they're looking at your... They're not looking. At, I mean, they're looking at the songs from Inexcess and different things, but they're looking at you and your artistry. What does that do for a writer? Is that just a great feeling? Yeah, you know, it's a, <clears throat> to be recognized by your peers for what you do while you're still alive, especially in any art form. You know, is, is an incredible accolade. I mean, you know, in many cases within the arts, in, in, in times gone by often people weren't really recognized in their own lifetime for anything, you know. Um, it was only as time went by and they were racked up against other, you know, competition or similar people doing similar things in the arts, and I'm not just talking about music, you know, that, that time would go by and people would say, yeah, this, this person was important. What they did, you know, what they contributed to the art form that they were in was significant, you know. Um, I mean, we're still doing it, aren't we? You know, we do it with the classical. In the classical sense, we're looking back at at the ancient, you know, uh, Michelangelo's and Da Vinci's, and then more modern times, you know, classical music. You go back and you look at your Mozart's and Beethoven's, and then in, in the world we're in now. I, I think, I think one area that is going to be a curiosity, and it's hard to know where it's going, is the ever-increasing use of technology within music is, on the one hand, it's a wonderful tool, amazing what you can do with technology, like really incredible uh, stuff, you know, that you couldn't do before. 
and that's cool from from one perspective but from another perspective i don't know what will they have robot awards i guess in the future you know um um it's sort of strange really but i I mean i i think lyrically as well you know um you know the, the, the spoken written word is still with us and you know in whatever language it is you, you you're within and and that's a part of it too you know the the, the the word construction and saying a lot of things in in, in very brief form you know you, we've had masters have, haven't we in the last 40 50 years we've had masters of that you know from so many writers and um talented people have done incredible things uh, um amazing now, now you've done some incredible writing. What what do you think made In Excess such a huge band? Is there any contributing factors you can say? Like, I know you can't write, like you said, you can't write a book, page eighty five of, of, you know, this kind of music. But you can't write, you can't say why. But what do you think, in your personal mind, is what made In Excess as big as you guys were. I remember seeing you at the Spectrum in 1988 in Philadelphia and you guys were great and it, the place was packed. But what do you think made you guys so damn big? Because you were giant. I mean, as you said, you were international superstars. What how does, what made you different than a band that didn't make it? Well, that's a good question. I think part of it is in the stars. You know, like part of it's kind of, I don't know. And then again, it's the old saying, it's, you know, 1% inspiration, 99% hard work. You know, a lot of the time with us guys, you know, we we went and did things and put ourselves into extraordinary situations and worked too hard in many ways. You know, like we, that's one thing I used to, to notice is that I'd come back from some of the tours we used to do you know, and I'd talk to friends or whatever, and, and they say, what have you been doing? And a lot of the time, I couldn't even explain what I've been doing because it sounded like, uh, you know, I'd be full of shit because I'd be making stuff up about what I've been doing in reality. But And, and I say, why, what have you been doing? I go to work every day, and I go play golf, and I, I go over here, and I do this, and I do that, and I, you know, I, well, I, you know, I'm working my job, and I'm raising my kids, and I, you know, and then you, you go, well, you know, and then you, you think about what you've been doing out there promoting what it is you're doing with your art or music, and it can be pretty surreal. I would say one of the things that, that's a double-edged sword. I, I think that was one of the things that made in excess really a potent thing is that we did things that other people wouldn't do. You know, we, we, we toured really hard. We, we did tours that other people may not have wanted to do there wasn't enough money in it for them or it was too much work or we're just working too hard, but we worked really hard. And, you know, I'm proud of all of us guys for doing that because, you know, we didn't take an easy road. We we took the hard road a lot of the time. Um, But, you know, there were people before us that had done that, like ACDC had done that and out of Australia. They did the same sort of thing, you know. Um, And, but they're, one thing I learned with all of that is the biggest artists in the world, the biggest touring acts in the world that you can think of that still can fill a stadium or whatever, you know, make no mistake, they have that same work ethic. You know, that all of those people work harder 
than I need to, to now, do that. Now, you said, you know, you guys were potent. When in your eyes, and you guys had a long career, when in your eyes do you think the band was the tightest and the strongest? You know, because I, um, I talked to Rudy Sarzo, who played with Ozzy, and he said when it was him, Tommy Aldridge, Randy Rhodes, and Ozzy, he said that band was so damn tight. When did you guys, when do you think was your tightest, I mean, you guys were great for years. When did you think you're, you're as an artist, that you just felt a complete synergy on stage? Better than any other time. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, I think in the really early years, we were probably technically the best musicians we ever were with the very early years. I remember we did demos, uh, you know, for a label somewhere in Sydney, uh, you know, in the late 70s. And we did some recordings, and there was a guy in an older band who'd been successful in Australia. And someone in our band asked to find out what he thought of us go and ask him what he thought of us and I think he said something like yeah they're a good band but they're too good musically <laughs> whatever that means <laughs> because we were technically really good um, but I actually think we got better later on when we loosened up a bit and jammed some stuff a little bit more rather than playing exactly the same thing every night that we move some of it around you know and have some fun with the music i think that's when we, we were really hitting our stride in my opinion probably right about mid 80s somewhere around that period you know mid to late 80s we were, we were really on fire because we knew how to play it safe and how to play it exactly like the record but we also knew enough to know how to modulate stuff and then we invite guest musicians on stage you know it could have been charlie musclewhite the blues legend uh, harp player could be, you know, uh, Dave Stewart from the Rhythmics. Could have lots of people want to get up and jam with us, and we'd say, "Yeah, go for it." And then we'd, we'd extend a section or whatever, and people would just do whatever they're going to do. But you know, I think a lot of things that that, that happen with us like that is something I, I, I always admired about the guys in the Excess. A great musician, you know, uh, Kirk Pengilly on, on saxophone, guitar. And, and vocals, great musician. Um, my older brother Tim, amazing guitar player. Uh, my younger brother John, amazing drummer, great singer. Um, and then Gary, amazing bass player, good singer. And of course, uh, then Michael and myself. And uh, you know, so we, we we were a tight unit. You know, we we, we didn't miss much, and we enjoyed playing together. That's another. It sounds funny, but just because you're on stage doesn't mean it has to be a you know, a sentence, you got to enjoy yourself. You know. Now, now, did you personally, did you prefer a huge crowd, a medium crowd, or a smaller crowd? You personally, I mean, I'm sure the, the high of playing Wembley is amazing, but you as a musician and, and just focusing and performing, what did you like the best? <laughs> yeah, I, I think my favorite uh, show, you know, for, you know, with the, with the sheds in the US, actually. Open air, but most of the show would be undercover, you know? And those amphitheaters, often the sound would sound fantastic because the sound didn't bounce back off walls. You know, they, they were some of my favorite shows that I love to play with those amphitheaters and outdoor festivals, you know, where, I don't know, it's just you're more in, in, in a, um, yeah, yeah, you're out in nature. There you go. That's right where we started the conversation. Exactly. Now, real quick, 
what is your favorite song off your new album? Okay, well, my album uh, was going to be released, uh, you know, during this month of May, but I've had to push it back a bit. It will definitely come out. Uh, I can't tell you an exact date right now, but it's you know it's going to be soonish. But in the meantime, I've got some more releases, and but which is my favorite song off, off my off my new album? Probably I've got two or three of them. I think probably um, "Run Baby Run" is is one song I'm pretty sure a lot of people will hopefully enjoy that, and it's got a pretty cool video that goes with it too. Um, there's also uh, "You Are My Walk." Um, there's another one, and My Cajun Girl, uh, you know, it's another one of the new songs that people haven't heard yet. And also Hummingbird, uh, Bounty Hunter. What's Bounty Hunter, Hummingbird, that's the name of the song. Now, um, I was going to say, now, when you, when you sell the album, and when all this coronavirus passes, will you go on tour for the album, or are you just like, you know what, you're not really into that anymore? Oh yeah, you know I'd like to get out and play to people. You know, and one of one of the things that you know has become so clear after this awful pandemic lockdown stuff is that for people who are in the arts and musicians and you know associated people who who will work in this industry, the very nature of it is social. It is a social industry. You know, it can't function without support. From people, from you know, from each other, and and so that's why this this pandemic thing's been so devastating to the music industry because it's you know by virtue, by nature of what it is, social, you know. Um, but I'd like to get back out and play. Yeah, sure, I'm looking forward to that, and I've already got some plans. I'll probably be doing some shows here either in uh, October, November, somewhere around there. Um, but I'm not sure when we can get over to the U.S. I'd love, man, I really want to come over and play there. Now, now, how often do you go live and play? I've, I saw you, you posted on Facebook as uh, you did Never Tear Us Apart. You were on your piano. How often do you post stuff like that? And I also saw one video where you have your guitar. You're in, and it looks like the wooded area, not a wooded area, the, the studio that is, has, it looks like a mandolin hanging on the wall and a candelabra. Um yeah. When? How often? That's do you, my studio. How often do you do those? Those? How often do you play those little uh, the bits like that? Well, I, I, yeah. You know what? I, I'm going to be doing a couple more of those sort of videos. I, I know Marley, my wife's been encouraging me to do them, and a lot of fans and people said they really enjoyed me doing it. So that's really good feedback. So I'm going to do some more of it. Um, I uh, whether it's you know the the older and excess songs. Uh, that I've written or co-written, and um, or whether it's my new stuff, you know, that I'm going to be putting out. Um, you know, I'll be yeah, I'll be doing more of it, and I hope you enjoy it. Yeah. That's awesome, man. You know, Andrew, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I could talk to you all night and uh, and for you all day. But um, I want to thank you. And, and people, the website is Andrew Farris. That's F-A-R-R-I-S-S dot com. You're also on Instagram, right? Right. You got it. And also, so people, please check him out. When his album comes out, buy it. Go to his website now. Watch the videos. And if you like videos, you know, like we used to like, these have the flair, you know, and they're Western and they're cool. It's, it's not what you're, when you put on, you won't go, 
who go, holy crap, that's a guy from NXS, and you listen, and you go, oh, this is really cool. So follow him. Uh, listen to NXS Musics. And uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. My website's coopertalk.net. You can find 797 or 8 episodes there. Email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.